Hey guys, welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today I have River Page, writer, my wife's favorite tweeter, and all around insightful guy. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. I didn't know your wife was a fan of my tweets that I've all deleted. <laughs> now. Yeah, I would, I would always be like, look at what this guy River wrote. And she'd be like, who is he? You have to get him on the show. He's so, so I've actually been looking for like two months for a way to get you on. And I'm really excited because you just had a wonderful piece come out in American Affairs on the CIA and the new dialect of power, which for exhaust listeners, this episode will be something of a spiritual sequel to our episode, The Imperial Vampire Castle. And Mm. we'll be talking about standpoint theory, the woke CIA, and all of that. So before we get into that, you wrote this piece, was it this year or late last year? Oh gosh, it it feels like a billion years ago, but it was this year in February. Yeah, in February. You wrote what's called standpoint bureaucracy for Twink Revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... I thought that piece like finally put into words things I'd been noticing and like trying to communicate, which Mm -hmm. is that this thing called standpoint theory, which we'll get to in a minute has now become like institutionalized Mm -hmm. and a part of our everyday experience. So like, what is standpoint theory for those who have never encountered, who've been fortunate enough to never encounter it. So standpoint uh, theory is, the idea that people, there's a couple of variations, either can only speak from their personal experiences or like things are best analyzed from a personal standpoint. So for example, like I'm gay, therefore like I am more qualified to speak on something like gay history than like a straight person, which is you know, I mean, not really true. I mean, like, I, I don't know why a straight guy would want to like study the history of Stonewall. Like that's kind of, it would be kind of weird <laughs> to me, but like, cause I don't even want to study it, but you know, but, it, but I it's think Fran Lebowitz said that like Stonewall actually happened just because everybody was drunk and Judy Garland had died and that was enough. Yeah. I think that's pretty much it. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> I, I think that like people were just like, they, well, it was just kind of like an expression of like exasperation. Like people, yeah. I think people just wanted to be let alone. And like yeah, now totally. it's become, now we're like living in this insane kind of world. <laughs> but no, I, so standpoint theory is this uh, idea that like you, you know, you speak as like your identity. So it's like as a black trans woman, you know, it's all these like layered identities mm-hmm. and like, you know, who is able or most qualified to speak on a particular issue is like attached to their identity. And so like, you know, the the example I gave of like the gay history thing, it's like, yeah, most gay people would know more about gay history than like straight people would, right? Mm-hmm. Generally speaking. But when it gets into like, you know, oh, well, you shouldn't speak on poverty unless you are like from the most oppressed of the oppressed. You have to be like, a crippled like native american um, (laughs) trans whatever you know to like speak on poverty which is also like very silly because like of course like class and race don't exactly align despite Mm -hmm. but you know it's become kind of a stand i think yeah i think that's absolutely true i mean the first time i like ever encountered that idea i remember it making me like immediately uncomfortable not just because like it puts a damper on any sort of like democratic communication Mm -hmm. but also like you just like don't you have in order to speak at all you have to create an identity Mm -hmm. like to like justify anything you're going to say you have to like search within yourself Right. And like play this weird lineup game of like, how have I been damaged by society in a way mm-hmm. that I can speak with authority so that people will listen to me, which is a bizarre way to go about things. Right. And like that's it's become a form of credentialing, which I think is like a lot of, uh, you know, identity has become a, a form of credentialing, which is a lot of what the standpoint bureaucracy was about. I, I open with the infamous DSA meeting where people are like screaming about pronouns and perfume being too heavy. There's a lot of like autism. No booing, no hissing, no clapping. Being made. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, I don't 
it's not my place to say whether or not these people have autism. I mean, there's something wrong with them, but, (laughs) 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 but I, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I mean, the, I, I think a lot of it is put on. And I mean, if you, you know, kind of hang out in these leftist spaces, you will notice that like everybody is, quote unquote, like queer or Mm non-binary, which never means like I'm a guy who like fucks men (laughs) or I'm a woman who fucks women. It's always like some convoluted like gender thing that's not really like what you would expect a trans person to be like a pretty straightforward, like I was born a male and now I identify as a female. It's rarely that it's like, you know, some kind of... (laughs) thing where you like paint your nails if you're like a guy and like use they them pronouns or you you know put on like a a eccentric kind of wig yeah or something or like an anime t-shirt i don't know you know there's like a local organization i'm not going to get any more specific than that because it's a small town but you know like i met someone who was introduced to me as like gay Mm -hmm. and then it turns out like then the next time I met him, he's like, this is my girlfriend. And I was like, I don't know he was gay. And that was like, when did they get together? He was like, oh, they've been together for years. I was like, so am I, she's a woman, right? Like, and they were like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, so he was like, yeah, they were like, yeah, I think it's like a political thing. I'm like politically gay. I don't know what that means. Okay. Like, I mean, it's just like, just shit that like fucked with my mind, you know? Um, well, it's entirely and- not straightforward is I think part of the problem. Right. And then it becomes, right. I think as you lay out this way to have these exertions of power or to clamp down on different things and people are just like, well, the working class isn't reactionary, so they'll be okay with this. And it's sort of like, well, most people just like, don't think about it this way. And there aren't their concerns for it. And that's not because they're reactionary or not. It has in fact, almost nothing to do with that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that <laughs> you, I mean, you can have a debate on whether or not the working class is reactionary. I think that that is like such a broad statement that like it doesn't make sense i think there are like some people in the working class who are reactionary yeah like any group of people it's a mixed bag sure yeah but i mean to i i think that it's mostly just like that this sort of stuff is like confusing Mm -hmm. to people like people don't get it people don't know what you're talking about and you know that was my big point. Like the DSA thing is like, all of these are like such minor issues that have nothing to do with class politics, certainly, and nothing to do with actual politics at all. It just seems like people like clamoring for attention. I think it was Angela Nagel who went on Tucker Carlson to talk about it. Is that the only illness they have is bourgeois narcissism, which was such a great line. But yeah, they, it, it has become like this extremely convoluted thing where it's like people are tagging on identities, like the way that you would tackle on like some sort of like certification you know like oh i like learned how to code python or whatever and it's like (laughs) because that's like the world that these people live in and they wouldn't have if you know the truth is is that a lot of the people uh, in the organized left are not working class people a lot of them are the sort of like temporarily embarrassed like children of the middle class and typically not you know the kind of blue collar middle class which my family kind of like fell in and out of it's the you know it's like their parents are accountants they're engineers they're lawyers they're they're stuff like that and you know they have to they have to prove themselves legitimate they can't be like a part of the oppressor class so they have to like somehow join the you know the victim class and if you can't do it by being working class or being poor you know you can do it by adopting some sort of niche identity or you can just be like a middle-class black person and say that you know i am you know oppressed uniquely and more than like any you know anybody else in this country because i'm black right 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 exactly i mean and i think that this was i couldn't help but keep thinking about this piece in your thing on the cia because when those recruitment videos came out where it was like, I'm a gay dude with a septum ring who runs the CIA library. (laughs) And like, I'm amazed at how accepting they are of LGBT stuff. And then that woman whose thing ended with, you know, you're worth it, Miha. You know, it was, it was, I like, 
my mind almost couldn't process that along with the flat design joy division unknown pleasures logo change for the cia mm -hmm. it was totally yeah. like uh, <laughs> it was well, like a piece from the onion or something like that like i know that's a hack thing to say but it went so far in that direction that i it beggared disbelief well I, it did like trigger something in people um which kind of surprised me because i was like no like this we see this type of shit from corporations like giant evil like tech corporations who are mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if they're doing, you know, they're probably not doing the coups themselves, but like, I mean, soon, <laughs> I mean, they've almost completely superseded the government. You know, I mean, they control the government, mm -hmm. all of these like large corporations, and this is how they talk. And so, like, I think it's like obvious that the CIA would like use their sort of adopt their like aesthetic preferences and use their language because it's the language of the class. Mm hmm. And it's the aesthetic of the class. I wrote another piece on Twin Cred that people can check out called, shit, what is it called? <laughs> oh, the banal decadence of the liberal elite. And it's all about like the sort of awful, almost austere aesthetics of the professional class, which are really alienating. You feel like you're in a dentist office when you go into these people's houses because everything's mm -hmm. just white and they have like an iPhone charger and like one succulent. And I guess now like a weird tungsten cube or whatever. Yeah, right. It's the, it's, I mean, um, it's like a life that is flat design. Right. And it's, I think it sort of mirrors their spiritual and moral emptiness, but that's besides the point. But yeah, the, they got put this, I think the CIA got pushed back because like the broader public is like, oh yeah, these people like killed, you know? I mean, even if you um, don't know what like Operation Northwoods is, or you don't think that they deliberately lied about WMDs in Iraq, most people I think in this country think that like they killed JFK mm -hmm. or like, you know, or they know about some of the coups, like they know they've done some shady shit, you know, brought crack in the inner cities, whatever. Everybody has their own kind of thing. I feel like if you talk to regular people and like bring up the CIA, they always, it's always different too, but they always have like one thing that they're like, yeah, they did that shady fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's know? nobody that's just like, ah, yes, my favorite governmental body. Right. The so CIA. Like, um, you know, when people see like you, you could run that exact same ad and just replace CIA with like Facebook or Bank of America mm -hmm. or BlackRock or whatever. And no one would blink an eye because they haven't been for the past 10 fucking years. Right. But your point is also that this goes even deeper, mm -hmm. right? That they, you can trace this all the way back to the formations of the new left. Right. The CIA, I think they have, they sort of garnered a reputation as like sort of like the platonic idea of like a reactionary in the minds of leftists mm -hmm. because they were so anti-communist, which is true. But it, it's funny, you know, because Gloria Steinem worked for the CIA, admitted this openly and was on the board of the DSA until 2016, 2017. Mm -hmm. And the only time she's ever been reprimanded by the CIA when she was honorary chair is when she said that women were only young women were only voting for Bernie because like they wanted to get boyfriends or something along those lines. Yeah. It wasn't like you worked for the CIA. And so, you know, the CIA, they in, in the very early kind of days were very into sending people like Gloria Steinem to socialist conventions in like Helensky and Switzerland and, and stuff like that to sort of rabble rouse and like sort of build an anti-Soviet left. Mm -hmm. is, is basically what they wanted because they weren't really concerned about leftism more broadly, like some sort of like social democracy type stuff, because I think people tend to forget, like that was actually fairly mainstream still in like the fifties and sixties. Oh, completely. I mean, that was just um, the idiom. Everybody talked about things in, I mean, America had its own weird new deal version of that, but that was, so, that was hegemonic until like the Goldwater campaign, basically. Mm-hmm. And the CIA, I don't think, was um, really concerned about, you know, for instance, Black Americans getting rights. I don't, you know, the FBI, that's a different story, you know, but, you know, or about like women getting abortions. Like they didn't care about any of that. You know, they weren't social conservatives. They like hung out with gay people. They shielded gay people from the lavender scare, you know, gay people that were useful to them. If you like look at, you know, the founding members of the CIA, most of them kind of lived these sort of libertine 
cosmopolitan lifestyles where they're a lot like of them were like English majors. And, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. James Jesus Angleton, he was you know one of the founding sort of officers and was he wasn't a director, but he was director of operations, I believe, for like a long time. Mm-hmm. And he was like a personal friend of Ezra Pound, grew up in Italy. His dad was sort of friendly with Mussolini, or at least Mussolini's like, you know, cronies. Never renounced, said that he didn't agree with, he said he generally agreed with Ezra Pound's politics when questioned by the FBI about his connection to Ezra Pound, (laughs) who, you know, after the war was being like tried for being a fascist in Italy (laughs) and betraying the United States. He said he didn't, he said he more or less agreed with, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but more or less agreed with his politics, except that he didn't like how hard he was on Jews and bankers. (laughs) <laughs> Which I was like, well, I mean, really, what's left after that? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> that was kind of the whole thing. But yeah, so the you know these they, they're kind of weirdos, sort of eccentric, rich guy types, who you know were not did not find like homosexuality baffling or the idea of like empowered women or you know whatever career women whatever they didn't find that strange. There were women who worked in the CIA from a very early time. Right. They had Um, to be cosmopolitan in a way, mm -hmm. because what that job would demand of you, which is to be able to run field agents or blend into another culture or Mm -hmm. to get sources or whatever, would require that. That's totally different than Hoover's boys. Right. Right. Like who were on a totally different fucking vibe when it came to that. And I think that people conflate that to their own detriment. Right. Yeah. Because you could kind of be like a bumpkin Iowa farm boy and go work for the FBI, Mm -hmm. you know, like because, you know, that's all like gunslinging and like investigation skills and like like, it's a different skill set. It's a different like a different mandate. Your mandate is within the United States versus CIA's is international. I mean, you have to speak, you know, multiple languages. You have to be like familiar with different cultures. And really the only way you can kind of grasp that is like by either growing up in like a very sort of like high bourgeois Mm -hmm. family or nowadays a professional class family that didn't really academia wasn't such a huge thing back then it wasn't a sprawling Mm -hmm. because you didn't have like the state university systems to quite the degree that you have now because a lot of those were built in like the 60s and 70s so you either had to come from like a family like that or you had to like have grown up abroad which i mean most and like not really be like an immigrant, you know, being you be recruited as an asset as an immigrant, but not usually as an agent or mm-hmm. an officer. So it's typically like, you know, these people who their parents are like international business people, art dealers, you know, like kind of like people who travel, you know, who spent their childhoods traveling Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Kids and, of the officer corps and the army who lived on base to base, like. Right. And so these aren't like, you know, the sort of reflexively racist bumpkins at times who are like running the FBI, which I mean, that's not everybody, but you know, a lot of them, it's these sort of high bourgeois, like sophisticated anti-communist liberals. You know, these are people who consider themselves enlightened and have like a sense of like noblesse oblige and which is not the same thing as patriotism. Yeah, way more paternal. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I take a look at it, it's funny. I was I what you what we're talking about here with this differences between the FBI and the CIA reminded me of something I was hearing about um reading it here or there in articles, even in a couple novels that were fairly contemporary, was that the CIA was starting to run into trouble because like too many Mormons were applying. <laughs> and they were too like they were too buttoned down. Yeah, they can't get along. Right. Yeah. And that that was like and so they were ineffective. And now if I'm like, wow, I wonder how true that actually was and if this push for woke PMC was a way to get like a different recruitment pool who would not necessarily be like a God and country Mormon, but would be the type of person who could say, well, all of these like backwards people in Afghanistan hate women. And that's why we need to keep their regime unstable. Well, the good thing about the wokeness thing is that because like there's this weird contradiction and like liberal ideology of like the post-left era where 
you're both like being like a colonizer and being like, I don't know, like a white supremacist or something. Yeah. If you like don't respect foreign cultures, particularly like non-white, non-Christian mm-hmm. foreign cultures. If you look at like the sort of things that people have said about Ion Hersey Ali, who like I don't agree with, I, you know, I I understand why she's become sort of the neocon <laughs> kind of figure that she's <laughs> become. But I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, the way that people on the left attacked her and was saying like, you're an Islamophobe, you're crazy or whatever. You're like trying to push Western ideas on people. And she's like, yeah, I just don't want like female genital mutilation or like women, <laughs> like yeah. having to wear burqas or like being married off as children and like all perfectly reasonable ideas. Right. But if you're like, yeah, like recruiting, like the woke people, they're both, they know how to like speak to like the woke like uh western audiences where everything is like sort of like this neo-puritanical thing but also have like a deference to whatever barbarism they might Mm -hmm. uh, you know encounter overseas because they can write it off as cultural difference that's the thing with cultural relativism is that you can claim the moral high ground Mm -hmm. while permitting anything yeah it's like a weird mott bailey machine Right. Or you can, I mean, of course, like the turn on a dime, you know, the minute that mm-hmm. <laughs> it becomes useful, you know, like all of a sudden they become very concerned about like the treatment of women under Sharia law when it's mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and they want to invade. But like when it's Saudi Arabia, they're like, well, well, you know, that's their culture. Yeah. So. <laughs> the world is inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something that I thought you brought to the fore very well in the American Affairs piece, where I do think that there is sort of a reshaping of institutions to a degree, right? Before we started recording, you and I were talking about Shays Boudin, whose parents were part of this new left thing, and how he's sort of running San Francisco to the ground by more or less like never enforcing the law or whatever. So I think that there is a little bit of that that's changing. But mostly you point out that this ideology is more about reifying than really reshaping institutions like the CIA. Right. Yeah. I think it's... (sighs) It, it it's just like bringing them into kind of like a new era like reifying them is probably like the best word but it's they they have to adapt right so mm-hmm. they in like the kind of bush era they they did have that sort of like american dad style like you know like yeah. flag lapel pen like salute the troops type of patriotism or whatever because that was the sort of cultural cultural like milieu of the day even among like liberals you know sort of establishment liberals and now the tide has turned and you know if you want people who go to georgetown and who you know study abroad at oxford and who you know, were the children of diplomats or like whatever, those type of people, if you want them to come work for you instead of go working for, you know, some nefarious NGO (laughs) (laughs) or the state department or a tech company or whatever, you have to convince them that it's moral, you know, because like the pay, they could probably get better pay in the private sector. Mm -hmm. So it's not about that for them the whole like nationalist idea is kind of dead. So, you know, the only people who still like believe in like America (laughs) are people who are not going to work out well in the CIA Mm -hmm. because they're, you know, they're honest, (laughs) you know, (laughs) regular people who don't speak six languages and aren't going to look the other way when, you know, their asset is like fucking kids or whatever. So, yeah, no, I could see how that would be a stumbling block for them and their aspirations and goals. I mean, when I was reading these two pieces back to back and thinking about your writing output in general, I mean, I would advise the listeners to just go to the Twink Rev website and yeah. I'm a way better uh, writer than I am a speaker. I, I was about to say, go through and, and read everything Rivers written. I very, very much admire his prose, but I was wondering how your thoughts on this have, have evolved, how you've come to interpret these things as you have, maybe what 
has changed your mind or what has surprised you over the course of taking a look at politics? Hmm. Are you talking specifically about like my view on like the professional class? It could be that it it could, it could be anything. I'm really just asking you about how you think and how that's changed. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I can start at the beginning. I mean, I grew up like on the Christian right. Mm -hmm. So my mom was the daughter of a Baptist preacher in East Texas. I mean, when she was like in high school, and like turned her life back together, whatever, got together with my stepdad. They were youth pastors. And, you know, like when I was like a teenager, I was like, well, like I'm like kind of gay. So like, this isn't really going to work for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, kind of like started like looking around different ideas. I mean, I read Ayn Rand. I read like some libertarian stuff. Mm -hmm. I, probably got into Marxism when I was like in my late teens. And then when I was in college, I was like, well, you know, I was kind of like enamored with like the Bernie campaign. I was like, well, you know, we should, you know, I think a return to like sort of social democracy would be good for this country. And like, I I still do kind of think that I don't think Bernie or anybody in the Democratic Party is capable of doing it, but Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that at the time. And then at, after like the Bernie campaign like fell apart and I saw like what was rising up in its wake, which was like the AOC, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, like the squad. And it was all just this like identity politics and like performative grief. And like, I hate, like, I don't want this to sound like misogynistic, but like toxic femininity. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's to, fair. If, if we could say there's it. such a thing, like the sort of what, like crying into the Instagram story, like, and I can, you can say this without saying like none of her pain or fear, it was real. Right. It's just like turning that into something for public consumption, mm-hmm. a very strange political gesture that speaks to the assumptions and values of the very class we've been talking about. Right. Right. And, and it was also that politics tend seem to like become pop culture with them. Like mm-hmm. I remember like Ayanna Presley, like talking about alopecia or something and being like, well, I want all the young black girls to know. I'm like, that's not your job. Like let like a, like a black <laughs> celebrity do that. Like, yeah, I mean, AOC like weeping and like the well of the house. I mean, it's not dignified behavior. Mm -hmm. It's weak, like public displays of weakness are like embarrassing. They're cringe. They're not like, they don't belong in the public sphere. They don't belong in politics. And, you know, when I got on Twitter, I, I was just, you know, I consider myself very firmly on the left. I was expressing, you know, opinions I thought were totally anodyne. I still Mm -hmm. think my opinions are totally anodyne. I think that's like kind of like what I'm good at is like saying things that are plainly obvious, just saying them in a, you know, writing them in a clever way. Like that's really Mm -hmm. all I do. I'm not, I'm not a good researcher. I'm not a journalist. I don't like, I'm not giving you any new information. I'm just like, saying it like what you already know in an interesting way like that i think that's the if i can think of a reason why my work is resonated it's probably that Mm -hmm. but just like going through and like i would just like tweet you know things about like i don't know like yeah i don't think this handbag's like super great just because like a black gay guy made it or whatever and i like give my address docs like that's real happening (laughs) that actually happened yeah i said they were ugly and that the fact that they're made from vegan leather doesn't change the fact that they're made in a sweatshop in china which is true and people yeah i got like canceled i got my address docs because apparently like a gay black guy makes it or whatever and i was and then I like, I was like, well, that doesn't make it any better. I was like, anybody can design an ugly fucking purse. And then I got <laughs> even more mad. But I mean, and then it went beyond that. I got, people got mad at me because I said like, you know, class is the primary contradiction in society. It's not race. If, you know, race was more of an indicator of power and like wealth and all of this, if, you know, race can't be a stand in for class because then you, how do you account for like Asian people and, Stuff like that. And then, you know, people. Well, it also just gets rid of disparities within those 
or class antagonisms within mm-hmm. those very groups. Like, it's just not, I think that's been like the standard sort of like read and son critique mm-hmm. of that type of thing. Yeah. And it's been, it's been strange because like all of the, I've really only ever written about class, really only ever talked about class. I mean, I've talked about like art and, and stuff too, but most of my writing is about class and I don't feel like my opinions would have been really that out of place maybe 20, 30 years ago. But now I think because of like the standpoint bureaucracy, everybody's trying to have their say and be like, oh, well, who is this? Well, I can't usually can't quite figure out if I'm white or not. They like kind of like, look, yeah. But then they're like, who is this white man talking about oppression? And I'm Mm -hmm. like, somebody who's talking about oppression. Like, what do you, what do you mean? And for whatever reason, like me writing and talking about class has seemed to have resonated more with the right than the contemporary left, which I find sort of strange and sort of like find myself not really wanting to engage with the left as it stands now, Mm -hmm. because it's just, we're talking about two completely different things, you know, because they're like, well, we need to talk about class, but we need to, you know, the emphasis on intersectionality, I think, and I, and I write about this in the standpoint bureaucracy, it's so much of an overcorrection, I -hmm. think. Because, I, you know, there's probably at some point in, in time where you could have argued like, oh, well, we, you know, we only talk about white working class people or whatever. Mm-hmm. But now it's become like so opposite where it's like we talk about everybody and then we talk about the working class. And even among leftists, like they don't want to admit it. But when they say working class, they're talking about white people, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, you know, because they'll, I've even seen like, you know, Black, Indigenous, you know, Asian Pacific Islander, which is a made up category, Hispanic, which is also a made up category. And then they're like the working class. And I'm like, okay, so if you're like a rich black person and I'm like a white guy who like lives in a trailer park, like what do we have in common? Like what struggle, like what what are we fighting against together? Mm Because I don't think we're fighting, we can possibly be fighting against the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's funny. It's like, been a running theme on this show is that I've talked to people, you know, I just talked to Joey Keegan, write stuff for tablet every now and again, like, like me, he came up through like weird straight edge, hardcore, like anarcho punk stuff or whatever as a kid. And like, has the tattoos to show for it and still like the job killer tattoos, you know, and finds himself writing on the right, despite feeling like he's never changed his perspective on things. I've had a similar conversation with Phil Cunliffe over at Alpha Bunga Bunga. Mm-hmm. Like it's, this has been true for me as well. It's been a very surprising shift that I never really saw coming. Yeah. And I, and I do kind of wonder how long it will last. Yeah. Same. Um, because, I don't know. Like when you hear like guys like Josh Hawley, who I struggle to take seriously for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. the most egregious him being like a straight, ostensibly straight man. who's like talking about masculinity, which I just find to be so undignified. <laughs> <laughs> like let gay guys like talk about that. Like let us worry about it. That's our fucking problem. It's like gay guys and like Lana Del Rey. Like those are the only two people who should be worrying about the decline of masculinity. Anybody else, it just looks so like self-effacing. But anyway, the they're talking about working class issues. I know he pushed for like the checks, mm-hmm. which is great. But I don't really see it going further than that. I'm like, where are they on healthcare? I know they're mm-hmm. trying to do this weird cold war shit with China. I don't like that. I mean, I do think we should negotiate some of our trade deals, but like, that's not what they're talking about. They're like, we need to contain China. We need to like protect Taiwan. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about Taiwan. Sorry. Never been there. Never going to go. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't get, like, I, lo- I live in Pensacola, Florida, bitch. I don't give a fuck about fucking Taipei. Like, <laughs> Sorry, no American gives a fuck about fucking Taiwan. Why are and like why are these people talking about this shit? And it and it seems like 
we can't just like i don't know if it's like a play to boost us into like that would be the most generous thing is like they just want to like you know boost us into like a wartime economy again by like having another cold war and i'm like i mean is that really what we have to do i mean Mm -hmm. there are other ways to stimulate an economy there's other ways to reindustrialize that don't involve you know provoking a nuclear power who's our largest trading partner like mm-hmm. it seems or one of our largest it, it just seems very dangerous and i don't know if i can like sign on to that and so that gives me pause but it's also there's nowhere to go with the left so it's like where do you go where do you you know no i totally feel you i mean i can understand like certain elements of the china situation even with the taiwan situation only because of the way the chip fabrication economy works and our reliance on that and what that means for us however after the fucking iraq war i'm completely sympathetic to people who are just like i don't want to fucking hear this shit anymore because all it's ever been is like lies and it's never helped us and it's only hurt us, which no matter how right some of the like, let's say, real politic manufacturing concerns are, I can easily see a way where this becomes yet another excuse to immiserate American workers and to roll back what's left of civil liberties, right? Like, I think that's a totally fair fear to have and history bears that out. And I don't know what to do either. You know, I mm-hmm. spent a lot of my time advocating for nuclear energy and grid resilience. And that's how I've ended up talking to the right so much is that they're really the only people that give a shit about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one thing that I've kind of turned on to because I, the only thing I knew about nuclear energy was just from like the hippie, like I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it'll like melt down. We'll have like a Chernobyl thing in like West Texas or whatever. I'm like, I don't want that, you know, like, because people are poorly educated on it, you know, mm-hmm. and like, they don't understand like the technology is different than it used to be. And that the risks are, you know, not what they think they are. And people don't realize, I don't think like with, I mean, I'm sure you've talked, this before but like all the solar panel waste and all that shit it just like goes to these like villages in like east africa and just like poisons the groundwater Mm -hmm. and like and also you have to extract minerals to build these things like i don't i don't know what like people think how we're gonna like where do they think we're gonna get all of these solar panels and all these uh and the amount of steel that goes into a turbine you know yeah like like, you have to extract and and where you're gonna you can only get them from like the congo so you're gonna have what we're gonna run the it's more ethical to like run the planet off of solar panels that are made from like conflict minerals that only last like 20 years like it just doesn't make any sense no, and there are other material reasons that we can talk about outside of the frame, the frame of this, because I have, I, have I have a ton to say. But I mean, I think this goes back to what you're talking about in your pieces is that there's this part class, part cultural path dependency mm-hmm. from the era of the new left that only seems to be getting reappraisal now. And even right. then, it is people who sort of don't comfortably fit like maybe you and I intellectually into what the left has become. Right. And they really made a mistake. Like when I say that they, when the CIA kind of like encouraged or like had some sort of like tangential relationship to the new left, I was talking about like the very early sort of splits, like when the communist party, like after the red scare, the communist party is like breaking apart and, you know, they're supporting people like Steinem and, and all that. So they're, and they're also like hopeful about like Foucault and stuff. Like they wrote about that. I don't think they directly interfered, but they're, you know, and they're doing the Congress for cultural freedom, which gave money to a lot of like left-wing people. I think, you know, of course, everything kind of got out of hand when, you know, the weather underground starts bombing shit and, you know, the Black Panthers start taking up arms. It all kind of gets out of hand after that, but it did, like all those people became institutionalized, you know, like the ones that aren't in prison are professors or, you know, I think I, 
had like a whole list one time of like people from the weather underground. Like one of them became a speechwriter for Hillary Clinton. Mark Rudd teaches, I think, at UNM and Albuquerque. I've met him a couple of times. He's done talks at a bookstore I worked at in Santa Fe. Yeah. Well, Mark Rudd's one of the only ones who I think has actually said like, yeah, we fucked up. Well, he was also a total fink. Like yeah. he w- he worked for the FBI. Yeah. Like that was. <laughs> yeah, true. But uh, yeah, well, all of these people like became institutionalized. And so they just funneled all of their, and, and it's not just the weather underground people, it's people who were like, you know, attached to the anti-war movement more broadly, which by the way, only really like kicked off when they started saying they're going to draft college students. So take that for what you will. Yeah. I think that was a, that was a cause of a lot of resentment among working class people who had already been. Right. Because imagine like, well, you weren't saying anything before, you know, when you were getting your deferrals. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, imagine being a working class cop, you know, your parents had no money, came from Ireland. Your little brother is over fighting a war you don't really give a shit about and he's risking his life. And this Harvard student with long hair is screaming at you, calling your little brother a baby killer. Right. Like it's easy to see where resentment would come just from that interaction (laughs) exactly even though like it's like i've never like said that i don't think that they were well i don't think they were justified in everything that they did but you know i think the anti-war movement was good i think it was justified like we shouldn't have been oh no yeah it was but it was an atrocity for sure but the way that it like tore this country apart at the seams it completely disconnected the left from the labor movement because that so much of the labor movement was supported the war because you know it is a shame on their part they shouldn't have done that but mm-hmm. the truth is a lot of them were involved in industries that benefited from the and there was also a lot of corruption in the unions at the time a lot of kickbacks I and mean, they had become very deeply entwined within like the democratic party machine which totally abandoned them the minute it got the chance so mm-hmm. it was a bad play on their part but yeah i mean that was such a pivotal time we've never really gotten past that the left has never really gotten past the 70s that's why you know i kind of brought up you know in the iraq war when Judith Butler and other people at her university were hosting a teach-in, which is like sort of reminiscent of like the new left, like anti-war activism, where like the students would like guerrilla style, like take over the classroom and like start teaching about Maoism or whatever it is. They were doing that, but they invited former a former CIA operative and were <laughs> like the t- professors were the ones doing the teach-in, not the students. So it's like, that's just your job. Right. You're not doing a teaching, you're teaching, <laughs> you know? Right. It's lost whatever radic- radical element it had to it, right? It well, becomes- for me, Yeah, for me, it was just like the perfect illustration of like how that entire movement had become institutionalized. It's like, they're no longer the guerrillas taking over anything. They're institutionalized, they're there. Mm-hmm. And because of like, you know, political expediency, they're invited, you know, they've made a sort of martyr off of a guy whose wife got, whose CIA agent wife got fired (laughs) (laughs) because he also a former state department guy who also was funded by the CIA to do his mission, wrote something in the New York times that pissed off Dick Cheney. Yeah. And it's like, so like, it's the enemy of the enemy is my friend, but they just took it so far. And they're like, no, we're going to invite this guy to speak. I'm sorry. Like, I mean, I mean, they'll probably do it now, but at least, you know, Fred Hampton wouldn't have invited a fucking ex-CIA agent to... Yeah, not in a million even years. Even hated him, you know? Yeah, not in a million years would that happen. So it really just showed how far they they become ingrained in this, in this system and they can't get out. And now they're, you know, children basically are our are our overlords, you know, Kamala Harris's parents met at an anti-war protest, Mm -hmm. you know, and probably, you know. Pete Buttigieg's father is one of the most famous English translators of Gramsci in the world. I read that, yeah. You know, which is, I mean, let me ask you this. You said that, you know, I think you say at the end of the standpoint bureaucracy piece that you're like, you're like, what is it? Not a pessimist or you are a pessimist, but your eyes are wide open. You know, like you're trying to take this reality as it actually comes. Um, oh, I'm a pessimist, but I'm not blind. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So is there, 
like what's giving you hope if any these days despite all of the bleak shit that we have just talked about and all of the oh, the overwhelming torrent of cringe we have interrogated well i think that there are still people who who i think like have an understanding that know that you know, all of this is just window dressing Mm -hmm. on a regime that's, you know, going to tear this country apart and just manage our decline in the most insulting, patronizing, like kind of way. And I think that people are waking up to that. And I'm hopeful that like that realization will turn into some sort of political action. I haven't seen it yet, but Mm -hmm. you know, I'm hopeful that it will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's sort of like I had this realization and tell me what you think about this. Maybe it's not a realization. I had this thought Mm. where I was like, it doesn't really matter what the thing is called as long as it's about the working class to me. Mm-hmm. Like that's when my mind started to just be like, well, there's not a, there's no obvious ally in either of these parties. Mm-hmm. There's no, like there's this thing that people on the left do where they're just like, well, I'm not a Democrat and I don't care what happens to the Democrats. And then they get upset every single time a Democrat loses. And I'm like, yeah. what the hell is going on here? <laughs> like, shouldn't we be taking opportunities where we can with whoever we can? And we don't, it would be bad for labor if it is basically beholden to only one party. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes like this weird leverage point front runner for whoever, you know, can crack the whip on it. Right. Well, I don't think people have realized that like there is no, neither party represents the working class. Yeah. Like even partially, you know, you could argue that the Democratic Party used to, you know, they also represented uh, a portion of capital. And that was always true. But at least there was a sort of I wouldn't quite call it like syndicalism, but there was a sort of a realization that these people had to be dealt with and they had to be given something. I think that the working class has accepted so much they've 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 accepted like so much of like the the decline i don't i don't i'm not saying that well but they you know what i mean right mm-hmm. like they've they've accepted the austerity they people have just come to terms that like you know you just aren't going to have it as good as your parents did you're not going to have the same opportunities your standard of living is going to decline mm-hmm. yeah um, and people have just taken this as a fact they've become so sort of beaten down and now all that's kind of left is like these like little identity politics where and and i think that's like where the cultural appropriation kind of stuff kind of comes in is that on the one hand it is part of the standpoint bureaucracy it is people trying to say like oh well only i can do this thing you know they're trying they're guarding their own turf but another part of it is like i think people just like they just want to have like one thing that they can be like kind of proud of or like one sort of one sort of like aspect of like the society that still recognizes them and doesn't just like completely ignore them. So like, that's why I, I kind of get it in a way. Well, and it also has to do with, this is something that a default friend talks about all the time. Like this stuff just becomes like its own fandom and operates by the rules of like Tumblr fandoms. Like that's more or less what a lot of this politics stuff is. You're creating these plastic identities online. You're defending their turf. Like it's a way to create a self that is allegedly or seemingly outside of the harsher realities, maybe of your day-to-day existence. Right. Right. And all that's true. And I would also add that, like, I think that a lot of what the left is, doing right now and you see a lot of dsa types do it and it starts like very innocuous where they're like we need like more walkable streets we need more like 
apartment housing, but then it turns very quickly and they're like, the suburbs are evil. Everybody should like live in like a studio apartment <laughs> like me in Brooklyn. I just don't want to pay as much in rent. And I think that really is like a, like they, whether they know it or not, like they're playing into this game. Like you can call it the new world order. You can call it like the fourth industrial revolution. You can call it whatever you want. But like this thing that we're definitely, that they've told us, like that the elites have told us over and over and over again in a million different ways that we're heading towards, which is just like this life where you have all of these like digital little knickknacks that you can play with and you can have your little online persona and whatever, but you aren't going to actually own anything. You're not going to have a family. You're not going to have a life that you wanted before. And like, and she'll be happy and should be happy. And whether, pe- whether or not people like try to justify that through like environmentalism or through like racial justice, you know, being like, well, the interstates cut up like black neighborhoods. I'm like, yeah, that's true. But also I'm sorry. Like we need like an interstate system in this country. Like well, and you can't do anything from place to place. I like being able to drive places. I don't like flying. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also I think the other thing is like, it's Sure, totally. And a lot of that stuff was fucked up. I mean, I'm from, you know, Chicago area. The Dan Ryan was put in, in a way, to create de facto segregation. But it's there now. Like, what would it take to get rid of the interstate situation? Would it even be worth it? Or are there different questions that we should be asking about our future? I mean, sort of what gives me hope is the recent UAW workers strike, rolling back some of the parts of the two-tiered system, making some major wins. That's exciting. And this great resignation that seems to be happening where people are like, you can take this job and shove it. Like I'm not working for these shitty wages anymore. Like I'd rather work odd jobs on my own time or figure it out than like. Right. And that I feel, I like, I feel hopeful. Like I like, I feel hopeful about that on the one hand, because I do feel like it's driving up wages a little bit because I have seen like signs on like a Wendy's where they're paying like 14 bucks an hour. And I was like, that seems like a lot for like a Wendy's, you know, or like, a, you know, seeing on like a grocery store or whatever. Cause I remember like working at a grocery store, like when I first started college, which wasn't, I mean, I'm only 25. So it wasn't that long ago and making like nine bucks an hour. And I'm like, now that seems like, a, you know, a big improvement. Yeah. But I also do feel like it's intensifying like this gigification of the con of the economy, which I totally. do feel really, I, I don't care for that. I mean, I, I write on Substack. I don't really do it as much anymore, but I used to like drive Uber and stuff like on the weekends for like extra cash. And like, it's good for like extra cash, but like I was thinking, uh, because I actually did have to live off of it while I was in between jobs for like a month. And I was like, fuck, I could not do this. Like, I don't know how people are making no, ends meet. It's brutal. Just I mean, doing this. And th- um, they're not. Every, every driver I've ever talked to on one of those things has just been like scraping by. Yeah, you know? and it's... And it's really concerning. And yeah, I don't, we've never quite figured out what to do. Like we got the service economy, we got the cheap goods and whatever. But when we did that, like you really did lose the ability to, to have like the kind of organized labor that you had before, because, you know, I, I worked in like bars and restaurants and stuff through most of college. There's no way you can organize those places effectively on large scale. The, tur- the turnover rate is too high. The whole thing that runs off, of, well, front of house runs off the of tips. The guys who really need it, like the kitchen guys. You uh, know, dude, I've been a dishwasher, sub-minimum wage. They don't tip you out and it fucking sucks. Yeah. And you want out of that job as fast as possible. You don't want it, better wages at that job. Exactly. And then, you know, even with like Amazon and, and, and stuff, like maybe I, I hope they can organize some of the warehouses, but, you know, I have a friend who, uh, works as a driver and it's all branded Amazon. He only delivers for Amazon, but it's a third party. Like it's a, it's subcontracted. Yeah. I was about to say so he's he 1099 gets, out. Yeah. He get, well, he, well, he's not, he's considered a regular employee, Okay, but the company is like an LLC that is like contracts with Amazon, man. So what happens if they were to organize there? Well, Amazon's just not going to renew the contract and that place is going to go under. Mm-hmm. Right. 
um, because they wouldn't be organizing a union with Amazon. They'd be organizing a union with that LLC, which could just dissolve at any moment or, you know, Amazon just wouldn't renew the contract and they all be out of the job. So it's just like the, there's so many different ways now to prevent like to stop like having like an organized working class in the way that you did in the post-war era that I don't know how you organize around like class politics in any other way besides populism. And that was my biggest problem with Bernie in his second run is that he leaned too hard into the identity politics shit. Mm -hmm. Um, He got baited by like Elizabeth Warren into being like, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. she's like, I'll uh, appoint a trans child as, commerce secretary or whatever she was saying (laughs) like he got baited into all of that shit and it did a it did throw people off and you know i think that you're going to have to have the best really that you can hope for is a trump like uh figure who's more committed to social democracy Mm -hmm. the most you're gonna have to do anti-immigration stuff and i'm sorry immigration is not good for the working class it's just not it's not good. Even if you're doing the, the uh, I call them like the bougie visas, like the, what do they call? I forget what it is, but like, you have to be like a computer programmer. Or like is that the uh, H1BC visa? H1B visa. So. Yeah. Right. Those are not good for this country. All that does is it just gives the United States an excuse to not invest in higher education because like you don't have you can let people go into like half a million dollars worth of debt to become a doctor in this country because you know you don't have to worry about like our supply running out because we can just like import the like the elite professional class from india or from china or brazil or whatever totally you can drive down wages in those areas too i think you know pedro gonzalez wrote a really good piece for i think american greatness before he started working at chronicles about what that did to tech workers in the u.s and how that worked uh hand in glove with the downsizing economy right and i have little sympathy for tech workers because (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. They tend to be like the most egregious. These weren't necessarily the, like uh, the Silicon Valley like guys. Facebook, these, yeah, 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 yeah. These were these were different, more like work a day suburban mm. people than like yeah. you know whoever's you know drinking froyo on Google campus. Right. True. But either way, it's just another way. If if not just to undercut wages and also to you know make it to where like you do actually don't have to like put price controls on these universities mm-hmm. you don't have to I, I also think we should get rid of student visas because like if you actually look into why college is so expensive a lot of it is because they're trying to attract foreign students to the to campuses pay in full. who will pay yeah who have to pay full tuition and what do they do that like they you know i forget which university it is in texas but they literally have just like a water park like they have like a lazy river and like all kinds of shit Dude, it's like what? Well, you don't need that at a fucking university like all of these like insane like amenities you know so they can have like the american college experience which is why you'll see like the children of chinese billionaires just go to like some random fucking state school in california and it's because it's it's a prestige thing for them but it drives up costs for everybody else because you know, to attract them to those campuses, it requires a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are all sorts of these perverse incentives. And I think you're absolutely correct about what happened in 2020. I mean, it was absolutely, that was a real eye-opening experience for me because I was also at the same time, so that campaign was going on, was like tutoring very wealthy kids in Los Angeles. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is what like real wealth looks like. This is totally different than how I imagined it. And I like understood in a visceral way, just how powerful it was. Right. And I think, and I got, I was, uh, when I was still working at TwinkRev or when the magazine was still running, we had like a live stream. And I think everybody on there disagreed with me when I said this, but I think that in this day and age, nationalism should be like a part of the left. Like if you're still concerned about the left, yeah, hundred percent. nationalism should be a part of the left. <laughs> Absolutely. Because what is the alter? It's not like, you know, all daffodils and like, you know, hugging Gandhi is, you know, you're the alternative is a global, global capitalist system, which is 
way more harsh um, than the sort of, you know, industrial sort of closed off economy of like the 20th century was. And, you know, it's just, it's taking away from the working class. So when you're like, you know, you should, the, the working class should have solidarity with, you know, workers in Mexico or whatever, which, you know, I saw like some Marxist site that was condemning, what was it, the John Deere strike because they were complaining about like outsourcing to Mexico or something. And they they were like saying that like, oh, well, you don't support like workers in Mexico. It's like not over my fucking job. No, like, like I, I mean, just common sense of not like, like of not knowing how to talk to people, not, but more than that, just the lack of commitment that the modern left has to the American worker. Stop talking about the third world proletariat. Nobody gives a fuck about that in this country. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like those people have to be in control of their own destiny. And the best thing that you can do is get your own government in order. Like if you want to dismantle yeah. the imperial state, which by the way, is not just America anymore. It's also China. I, you know, they can call themselves communists if they want, but they're yeah, it's a multipolar world. And- we're entering yeah, they're a sweatshops in Africa to feed their newly uh, minted middle class. They're doing the same thing that we did. So if you really want to take on the imperial state, start at home. <laughs> okay. You know, start by actually reaching out to the working class in your country. Stop worrying about rice farmers in Cambodia, because I can guarantee you that like nobody who just got laid off or just got their job outsourced is concerned about that. You know, I really think that that because if you look into I like to listen to Bill Maher sometimes because he kind of preaches like he he says very plainly, like the sort of boomer liberal, like bellwether for that type of stuff. And he was like, well, it's true that, you know, he was like the outsourcing and all of that. That actually has lifted millions of people out of poverty in the third world. I'm like, well, good for them, but that sucks for us. And nobody should be applauding that. I'm sorry. Like, and and I think that a lot of like the new left, because those are the people who are protesting the Iraq war, like those people became machine party Democrats. Those became the people who deindustrialized our economy. And I think they partially felt justified in doing it because they felt that the unions were reactionary. And then they, you know, they can become these t- sort of like think tank people who who work at like at these, you know, international development NGOs and say like actually deindustrialization was a net good because it lifted millions of people in Southeast Asia out of poverty. You know, um, right? Yeah, I mean, insidious. to me, it's it's sort of like the idea that I always come back to is solidarity and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. In order to have a democracy. It has to be sovereign in all sorts of ways. And that is the only meaningful way in which the people who live there can discharge their power in towards their own political ends. And that is just sort of a basics of politics that could stand to be internalized mm-hmm. by people on the left. I mean, or anyone who wants to have working class power in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whether it's called the left or not, not to say that it would be right wing, but that like, what is the left currently does not really care about that power in all sorts of ways, except in the most superficial. So I think we'll close it there with lots of food for thought. River, thanks so much for coming on. I had a great. So before we go, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter under river underscore is underscore nice which is like a very long and not easy to type in, but you should be able to find me. You can find some of my work on TwinkRev. I've also written for Splice Today and my newest piece is in the winter issue of American Affairs. Great. And you have a Substack, right? Are you still doing I do, that? yes. It's river.page at substack.com. Okay, great. And guys, all those will be in the show notes if you want to check them out. Thanks again to River and stay safe out there. We'll see you next time.